Elections take place across the UK tomorrow and the results are likely to give the clearest sign yet of the state of the union between England, Scotland and Wales. The future of Hong Kong's public broadcaster is in question as radio and TV programmes begin disappearing from one of its online archives. And as cinemas prepare to reopen in the UK, we'll reach for the popcorn at the prospect of a boom in cinema going in the months ahead. Monocle's editors and correspondents are here to discuss those stories today here on the late edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 5th of May and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and joining us today are our regular Wednesday duo, Monocle's news editor Chris Chermak and our culture editor Chiara Rimella. Chiara, Chris, great to have you both with us once again on a Wednesday here on the late edition. Uh, Chiara, you've had a pretty busy round of dinner bookings since lockdown restrictions eased in London, so a little bird uh, tells me. How are things how are things looking for you there in London? Look, I've loved it. I just went crazy with bookings, I guess, whilst everybody else is complaining that, you know, you can't schedule in fun and blah blah blah. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> so I booked myself two or three dinners uh, per week. For, for, for all weeks from now up until mid-June, basically. And the first few weeks of April have been truly delightful. Um I just, by now, I already feel quite exhausted. <laughs> you know, I just don't have the physique I used to have anymore. And uh, and the wallet is kind of feeling <laughs> the effects of my, you know, rounds of drinks and uh, starters, mains and dessert kind of consumption. Not to mention the waistline, of course, whilst everybody else is very keen to kind of uh, shake off their Kronospeck, as uh, Chris would, uh, would define it. Uh, I'm just going the other direction, really. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, hilarious to hear you talk about it in that way, because yes, I've definitely been in so many ways on the opposite side of you, both focusing on reducing my Corona Speck uh, by playing lots and lots and lots of tennis. And the one booking that I actually had that was sort of fixed was for Monday at 12.30, where we sat uh, sat with some friends at an Ethiopian restaurant in Gale Force Winds, because it was the one day where, you know, the weather had suddenly just completely changed, and we were out there freezing and, and sort of with, like, three blankets each, and the wind was flying across us, and it was all we could do to, you know, stop. Even my coffee was sort of flowing out of the, out of the saucer. Um, so we, we were there very determinedly, though, and we stayed for lunch, and uh, it was good. Was it worth it, Chris? Totally worth it. Totally worth it. But uh, that is one, at the same time, one lesson for me of like, you can only do so much planning, at least, at least on my side. (laughs) Well, Chris Chermak and Chiara Rumela, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, an array of elections take place across the UK tomorrow. In Scotland and in Wales, they are national elections for the Scottish and Welsh devolved parliaments. In England, the elections are for local and city governments across the country. The results from all of them will be watched closely, given that they are the first electoral indicator of the State of the Union in the wake of Brexit and the upheavals wrought by the coronavirus pandemic. As Laura McAllister, a Professor of Governance at Cardiff University, in Wales and the UK explained for us on the briefing today. Clearly these are highly unpredictable elections across the UK. They're national elections in Scotland and Wales and then of course local elections in England and the position is fundamentally different in each case 
And therein lies the problem. We have very different political dynamics affecting how people decide to vote in Scotland to Wales and then from both to England. So the one thing we do know is there will be some disparity in trends and in swings between the parties and indeed in the levels of support that the independence focused parties in Wales, Plaid Cymru and in Scotland, the SNP perform in terms of the results. So this isn't in the sense the beginning of the end of the UK because I think the debate about the value and credibility and sustainability of the union has been going on for quite some time here in each of the component nations. But what this will do will give some hard data and hard evidence as to what people feel about that on the ground. Laura McAllister of Cardiff University in the UK speaking to us a little earlier today. Uh, Chiara, to begin with you, what exactly in your mind is at stake tomorrow, would you say, for the United Kingdom as it currently is constitutionally? Well, I think as Laura, you know, explained there quite clearly, I think quite a lot is at stake. And I think that Yes, it's true that the discussions have been, you know, playing for a long while, but I feel like all Scotland needs right now is just, I guess, confirmation that the intention is still there. Um, Just because I feel like the line from the central UK government has always been that now's not the time, now's now's not the time to consider a referendum. But this time you have to you have to really, you know, see it from a completely different perspective. This time it does feel a lot more warranted. You know, whilst the central UK government may say that it's not the time because of the pandemic and because of any other other priority, it seems like all the you know, conditions to lead in that direction are firmly there. And I will be surprised if whatever the actual complete kind of majority tomorrow is, if if the, you know, discussion would just disappear. I don't think it will. I think it will only get more intense from here. Yeah, it's been a very different type of discussion there that I find really quite fascinating. The, the final point I make on that is it does also leave me wondering, on the one hand, we're focusing on the frictions of Brexit for Scotland. I can only wonder what the frictions would be like if Scotland had to break away from the UK. And, and while, yes, it would be able to join the European Union, it would have to break away from the England and discuss, you know, common borders and customs between Scotland and England and, and all of these issues that we're now facing with Northern Ireland and Ireland and, and the EU and so forth it wouldn't necessarily get easier. So in that sense, it's just very interesting to look at the messaging and how each side is is talking about the future and how they're going to, you know, whether they see that future in a positive or negative light. Well, we will be monitoring the results from those elections taking place in the UK tomorrow in the coming days here on Monocle 24. Next here on the late edition, activists in Hong Kong have raised concern about the independence of the territory's public broadcaster, RTHK, following the implementation of Beijing's controversial new security law in Hong Kong last year. Archive material from RTHK's YouTube channel, which spanned years of TV and radio broadcasts, have begun disappearing from the social media site, leading many to fear that a state-sponsored revision of Hong Kong's recent broadcast history is underway as our Bureau Chief in Hong Kong, James Chambers, told us on The Globalist today. As of Monday, they've decided to start deleting any content that's over 12 months old. And the official line from the broadcaster is this for consistency. 
so that its own website matches what's available on YouTube. But uh, obviously that's raised a lot of questions in Hong Kong. People are asking, why now? You know, a lot of these programs, a lot of these current affairs programs were made during the um, protests in 2019 and uh, were very critical of the government and the police. So, um, you know, a lot of people are, are wondering whether that has any, is that part of the motivation? Hong Kong has been, have been mobilized to kind of download these programs while they're still available and create a, a kind of uh, unofficial archive. James Chambers, Monocle's bureau chief in Hong Kong, speaking to us on The Globalist this morning. Uh, Kiara, this story puts a, a renewed focus, I suppose, not only on the role public broadcasters play generally in the territories they serve, but also on the, the role of broadcasters' archives as chronicles of sort too, doesn't it? Yeah, of course it does. And, you know, the role of public broadcasters, I feel like, you know, going back to Rai, which is the Italian public broadcaster, there is quite an interesting story actually happening right now properly with regards to the, the role and and what they play and an issue of censorship in Italy as well. So I don't know how many of our listeners will be aware that there has been long-running controversy around the hom- uh, anti-homophobia bill in Italy that stalled in the Senate. It got it got through the lower house of parliament last November and then it just stalled and stalled in the Senate. It was pushed and not discussed for many months because the far right parties just aren't interested and, you know, because they have kind of ultra Catholic members of these parties that have, you know, also gone on the record in the past saying truly horrendous, horrendous things. And um and this has caused a lot of controversy, but particularly um, last week on the 1st of May, which is obviously an international um, you know, day, um, but in particular in Italy, it's always um, associated with a large concert that's also televised on state broadcaster Rai. So it is an occasion for artists, musicians to come to the stage on the national stage and make statements about, I guess, the state of the rights in the country, be it labour rights or others. And one of the most famous uh, pop stars in the country, Fedez, um, took to the stage and actually, you know, um, made a very, very scathing criticism of certain uh, things that members of the Lega had gone on record saying, you know, truly horrendous insults, um, which I won't care to repeat right now. And and basically saying, you know, the reason why the, the people say that the bill has been delayed because there are other more pressing issues at stake, but then run through all the other bills that have been passed in this time, um, which obviously don't seem, many of which didn't seem quite so urgent after all. And this has caused a huge stir because uh, it then later emerged that this rapper Fedez had been on on, a, on the phone to high members of Rai who had basically told him that making such a really explicit criticism would be inappropriate and not appropriate for the context. And so this created a huge, huge, huge nationwide debate on whether this was censorship or not and whether, you know, high members of Rai should, you know, even um, resign over it. Um And I think that, you know, the justification on the point of view of the state broadcaster is there should have been a counterpart. But do you need a counterpart when someone is just reporting insults that members of certain political parties have made in the public sphere? So I think it's a real interesting question in terms of does the state broadcaster always have to, you know, align with complete neutrality? Or is is it possible for someone who is an artist 
to have that level of freedom of expression if if they are taking the stage on such an important, you know, an important day. So I think that, you know, in a lot of countries, we take our state broadcasters for granted. And we think that, you know, th- this this principle of neutrality is just, you know, an assumption. But actually, you know, it's in cases like this that we need to reconsider and actually and, and actually genuinely appreciate what the role of these broadcasters is. And I think that in Italy, many people are asking themselves that and they're asking themselves how politicized, you know, the, the state broadcaster I've become and how it should change in the future. And Chris, this idea of taking public broadcasters for granted, NPR, the US public radio network, is celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, 50 years since its first broadcast. What kind of conversations would you say are taking place in the US about the role of public broadcasting, the function it continues to play in the US? Um, how has it changed? I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, in that discussion, for one thing, it's shifted very competently into the world of podcasts. Its listenership has gotten younger uh, as a result of that. Uh, and amazingly, you know, in, in terms of how well it's done on that, about one third of all podcasts listened to in the U.S. are made by NPR or its public radio partners. Um, and yes, it has kind of, as Kiara is talking about Rye, it has um, talked about and it has explored what it means to be a national uh, broadcaster over the last few years, what it means to be objective um, in that sense. There have been some questions over its funding to some degree, particularly from uh, conservatives who feel that it has moved too far to the left, that it is no longer impartial. But having said that, it's also interesting because it is a very different model than a Rai or the BBC in that it really doesn't get its funding anymore from government. It was sort of government chartered, if you will, through a bill back in the 60s. But really, all of its funding comes from nonprofits, from, from, even from corporate sponsors. So it, it, it's like a nonprofit organization rather than... Uh, a, a government media organization in that sense. So I think because of that too, it's always felt a little freer perhaps to to be fun, to explore, to do things a little bit differently, um, to question itself, but not really be uh, beholden to anyone uh, in particular and necessarily in that sense even be beholden to these accusations of of bias or or, or other accusations that, that float around uh, national... Uh, national broadcasters in in European countries, particularly, and of course, you know, it's also been quite introspective. They've made a considered effort to become more diverse uh, themselves. Uh, they've talked about that on air, and they're talking about that this week as well. The fact that they didn't have that many uh, African Americans on staff for many years, and that that's something they're trying to correct, and also how to talk about race, those kinds of things that obviously are key to the discussions that are now being had in the U.S. So, yeah, in summary, it's it's an interesting time for NPR to celebrate its 50-year anniversary. The nature of media is changing in the U.S. Um, the nature of, you know, moving from radio to podcasting is changing their audiences. And uh, you, you do feel that NPR is in quite a healthy state, frankly, uh, at the moment. And and, you know, still kind of at the forefront of, of, of strong, solid media in the U.S. 
Well, finally here on the late edition, the Odeon Group of Cinemas announced yesterday that its movie theatres in the UK will reopen on the 17th of May, after months of being closed during the UK's coronavirus lockdowns. And on today's edition of The Globalist, Monocle's regular contributor on film, Karen Krizanovich, assessed for us whether a boom in cinema going is on the horizon. People are buying tickets and in the UK it's opening on May the 17th, which is exciting. And New York is opening as well, but with a six foot social distancing rule. So they're thinking no capacity. So we, they're not cut to 50 people or 50%. It's now have as many people as you like, as long as they can stay six feet away. And people are scratching their heads because the cinema sizes of the auditoriums are all different. Don't forget a lot of people, I mean, millions of people who really crave that kind of emotional stimulation that we get from movies have been stuck at home. Karen Krizanovich there speaking to us on the phone a little earlier today. Kiara, how do you expect the reopening of cinemas in, in many parts of the world to play out in the coming weeks and months, uh, not only in the UK, but but elsewhere too? Well, Thomas, I think it's, this is really interesting because if if and we did have actually this discussion, but if we had had it last summer, I think a lot more people were actually wondering what the future of cinema would be and whether there was any future for in-person cinema because the world seemed all about streaming at the time, right? We'd only spent a few months in lockdown and people had, I guess, just gotten used to the reality of lockdown and to the convenience of streaming. And then fast forward a year and I think from the jubilation that I've seen in the, on the streets in the last few weeks, I don't think that there's anybody who has any willingness to stay cooped up indoors. I mean, yes, of course, some people are finding it harder to readapt than, than others. But I would say compared to the first reopening after lockdown, the enthusiasm for re, you know, picking up life back as normal is completely different. And also, I think this time has really taught us what our priorities are. And I think that cinema isn't just about seeing a film on the big screen. It's about community. It's always been about a communal experience. It is, you know, the natural evolution of theatre in person. And, you know, I studied Greek and Greek theatre at school and it truly is at heart a cathartic experience is something that you do as a community to experience the same emotion at the same time because experiencing the same emotion at the same time with a group of other people makes you feel connected and fuller that is just the way that emotions work and have always worked in history and so going to the cinema isn't just about paying a 10 pound ticket it's about just connecting to something bigger feeling your emotions stronger in that respect i think that people have really missed that i mean i for one you know we've all heard that I'm really keen on booking in advance so I've booked my first cinema ticket and I'm really excited that it's coming up you know and I think also I I was reading you know a number of reports uh, about this you know there's there's already like a number of you know drive-in events for this summer that are you know highly highly you know kind of anticipated and, and very much kind of tickets being bought But there is also um, a really interesting piece on variety um, where they talk to Howard Panter. And, you know, this is about theatre, I guess, in, you know, the the more traditional theatre, not movie theatre kind of sense. But I think it still applies because he talks about how he reckons that because many offices in the centre of New York, but in many other cities, have been left empty by certain companies that 
have embraced work from home and have no intention of returning to the office, that there will be a number of buildings you know, open and empty in city centres. And he's asking, I guess, the question, cities will want to adopt new strategies to bring, to bring people back um, into city centres, into downtown areas. And, you know, culture is going to to play a huge role in that because if offices are not there then how do you bring people out and you bring them out with cinemas with theatres with things to do with reasons to go into central and you know there are lots of people who haven't gone to central London in a number of months because they don't go to the office but we go to central London because we go to the West End because we go to the cinema because we do these things and they're just as good a reason to go to a place as your normal daily commute so I do hope that culture will be instrumental in rebuilding our cities and yeah I hope that people get booking their tickets. Well, speaking of people who've booked their tickets, Chris, dare I ask whether you've booked your ticket? What are you itching to grab a box of popcorn for once again? Thomas, you'll be shocked to hear that I have not booked in advance uh, for the cinema. But having said that, I am very excited as well. And it was funny to hear Chiara talk at the beginning there. I totally identified with this idea that last year streaming was quite fun and new for the first three months of lockdown. And now we're so completely over that the first thing I want to do is actually go and enjoy a movie again in a cinema. Um, And in terms of uh, ones that I'd like to watch, I do have a guilty pleasure for the Marvel movies, so I'm I'm excited to see those blockbusters uh, return, and Black Widow will be the first one to be coming out, so I think that is one that I will be watching in cinemas. And the last one, also to Kiara's point about community, I do make it, you know, I've made it a tradition um, over the last uh, number of years to watch the James Bond movies with my father uh, when they come out. He's a massive James Bond fan ever since Dr. No back in the 60s. Um, I, I feel like some other people might identify with this tradition as well. I know a couple actually who, who have uh, friends. And so I'm very much looking forward to booking that ticket to watch No Time to Die with my father even though he hates Daniel Craig and would like to see him uh, off the screen as soon as possible. I, I might agree personally as well, but I'm still, look, still looking forward to the experience. Well, Chris Chermak and Chiara Ramella, our very own box office gold here on the late edition. That's all I'm afraid to say we have time for for the show today. Thanks very much to the two of you for being with us today. Today's programme was edited in London by Sam Impey. A big thanks to her as always too. The late edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of The Entrepreneurs, which features a conversation with Frank Cooper III, who's Global Chief Marketing Officer for BlackRock, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a short while ago. I'm Tomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.